You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, as a guy who's written songs for a living, uh, one of my favorite songwriting stories of all time is, is that one uh, with uh, Paul McCartney. Do you know the story? Uh, so it's, it's amazing. So uh, Paul wakes up one morning. It's uh, early 60s. And, uh, and he's got a, a tune in his head that he dreamed about the night before. He wakes up and he's humming this tune. And he doesn't know what it is, but he goes and tries to find a piano and find a key. And when he finds the key for the next hour or so, he works on this melody that he heard that night. And by the time he's done, he has written what will eventually be called Yesterday. I am so jealous of that, that gift of that man right there. I, I wish that that happened to me. The, yesterday, if you, you know the song because it was the most famous song of the 20th century. It was the most covered song of any song in music history. Did you know that? It, it, this is... An incredible thing. What's crazy about the thing is the guy hears it before he writes it. He hears the whole thing in a dream. In fact, he was so concerned that he had plagiarized the song that for a month before he recorded it, he went around to all his industry buddies and he would play them the song just to make sure that he wasn't ripping anybody off. Like this, like that's how nervous he was about this thing. Now we have a word for what happened with Paul McCartney. Uh, we would say something like this, uh, that inspiration happened, right? Light, lightning struck. Uh, inspiration, you know, when, when someone is, is shown a vision of what could be so that they can see what should be. That's essentially what we, what we mean. So, being shown what, what could be to be shown what should be. That, that's what uh, inspiration is. Now, obviously, this is how art's created, but it's not just how art's created. This is how uh, movements are created, right? This is how movements form. So um, w- one week from now on, on uh, Monday, uh, we're going to celebrate uh, MLK Day. And, and this is a day where we as a nation, uh, we celebrate the life and the achievements of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, what a remarkable man uh, this man was. So, so King, uh, most of us know, uh, he was um, one of the most inspiring people that's ever lived. In the 50s and 60s, especially, he helped catalyze this nation uh, around the necessity of civil rights for black and brown people in America. Now, how, how did he accomplish this? How did, how did he help move the needle in the way that he did? And I, I submit it's by inspiration. It's by, he set before the people of our nation a vision of what could be to inspire us and to awaken us toward what should be in our nation, how we should act in light of what could uh, be the reality in our nation. And, and, and in fact, that's exactly what he did. Like to the T, in August 1963, King stands in front of 250,000 people in front of the Lincoln Memorial uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., and he presents his dream, right, a, a vision of what could be in our nation. And I just want to read an excerpt of it because it is one of the most powerful speeches that's ever been read. And we're going to put it on the screen for you. He says at one point this, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out of the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, that was almost 60 years ago now. Isn't that wild? 60 years ago. And here we are this morning. And, and what can we say about where we've come, how far we've come? What, what can we say about it? Well, I think we can say a couple things. One of the things we have to say is, man, in, in many ways, things have improved since 1963. Right? The, the Civil Rights Amendment was passed. Legislation has changed. The, the needle has moved in our country in some meaningful ways uh, that have made things better for minorities, different ethnicities, uh, black and brown folks in America, that things have improved since 1963. And we want to thank God for that. For the ways that they've improved, we want to say yes and amen. We're grateful for that. But at the same time, in, in, in some other really profound ways, there is still a, a massive gap between what could be and what is. Right? It doesn't take a whole lot of, of looking around to, to see that that's the case. Now, what do I mean? Well, let's just consider a, a, a few uh, issues for a moment. Let's talk about uh, something uh, like wealth uh, and uh, financial inequality. So in America, the, the median net worth of a black person today is just 8% of a white person at the same stage of life. Did you know that? Here's what that means. If I was worth $100,000... My black peer standing next to me be, would be worth $8,000. That's the, the median in this nation. That's, that's current. Think about how that would impact your ability to, to experience things like upward mobility if you're a black man or woman, right? Or the pursuit of education. Think about how, how dramatic that would impact that situation for you. Or let's take another slice of things. Let's, let's talk about um, the justice system for, for a moment. So statistically speaking, the, the stats bear out that that white folks and black folks use illegal drugs uh, at roughly the same rate. So, so we engage with, with illegal drugs uh, at similar rates. But here's what's fascinating. The, imprison rate, uh, the imprisonment rate of, of black people for drug charges is almost six times that of white people. So using at the same rate, over six times more arrests and convictions for black people than white people. I mean, what, what kind of effect does that have on a community over time. Dramatic effects. Or, or let's not talk about either of those. Let's just, let's just talking about, talk about population distribution, how people live. Are, are the lives of different cultures and ethnicities, white and black, for instance, are, are, are we seeing our lives overlap in meaningful ways uh, or, or not? What, how do we live? Where do we live? What does that look like in our nation? Well, to, to get a, a sense of that, all you have to do is pull up... Um, say, the racial dot map uh, of our nation. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's actually really fascinating. You should check it out. So uh, I think 2010 it was created. They created a, a, a map of the U.S., and they put one dot for every registered uh, person in the whole U.S. on that map, and they color-coded it based on race. So uh, a white person gets a blue dot, uh, a black person gets a, um, a green dot, a Hispanic uh, orange, uh, Asian, uh, red, and then uh, brown is for uh, the, any others that don't fall into those categories. 
So those are the dots. Now, uh, you can find this online and zoom in and see any area of our entire nation. Now, I want to show you some screenshots of what our nation looks like as of 2010. Here is a picture of Detroit, 2010. Blue dots, white. Green dots, black. That line in the middle, that's Eight Mile Road. That, th those are where actual human beings live. Isn't that fascinating? Let, let, me, let me just say that this isn't incidental. It doesn't just, it doesn't just happen because it happens. But let me show you another one. This is, uh, this is Dallas. Uh, so this is uh, our city right in the center. There, there's downtown. And in, in many ways, we're kind of looking at a similar map, aren't we? We have a lot of blue happening up north. We got a lot of uh, green and orange happening out south, east, and west of that, right? Incredibly divided. And I could go city by city by city throughout our whole nation, and it looks pretty much like this everywhere we go. It, 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 and it's not incidental. There's reasons for this. My point is this. My, by virtually any data point that you and I can consider this morning, the fact is we live in a very racialized nation. That, that race matters in our nation in some profound ways. What you look like is going to have a dramatic effect on your opportunities, your financial worth, where you live, all of that. And I'm just, I'm just looking at data and saying that this is what the data is showing us. Now, I want, I want you to take a look at something with me uh, for a second, because here's uh, one of the reasons that we're leaning into this issue today. Um, you can't see it, but right down at the bottom of the screen uh, is going to be uh, Midlothian. We're going to zoom in on it. It's not represented here, but it's represented right here. Now, I'm going to get my laser pointer out, and uh, this is the whitest thing I'll be doing all day uh, right here. So, uh, so right here, you got Midlothian. Little blue, blue nugget right here, okay? And right up here, uh, you have South Dallas, and you've got uh, Southeast uh, Fort Worth, okay? Now, I, I just want you to notice uh, something. It, all the projections, uh, by the way, of our city, Midlothian, are, are that we are currently and we will be blowing up in terms of population over the next five to ten years. So, some projections are saying uh, that we're going to grow to the tune of 65 to 95,000 people over the next five to ten years. That's what's coming for, for Midlothian. Now, now again, take, take a look at, at the populations that are surrounding Midlothian right here. Now, now population growth expands out from city centers, moves out toward the suburbs and then the rural areas. I just want you to look at the dots that are around us as we are planning for significant growth in our city over the next five to ten years. I don't know if you can see from your seat or not, but they ain't blue dots, right? Those aren't blue. There's a lot of green happening. There's a lot of orange happening. Not a lot of blue happening. My point is this. You don't have to be a demographer to, to see that diversity is coming to our city. It's, it's, it's on its way. We don't know to what extent. We don't know if it's 10,000 or 50,000 people. But we can look at the projections, we can look at the dot map, and we can safely say diversity is on its way to Midlothian. And what I want to say, 
And what we're saying as a church this morning is that is a precious gift from God to us. That is a gift from God to this city. And as our diversity grows as a city, what we want to produce in our church family is a people with soft hearts and open arms who create a welcome atmosphere for people of color to come and engage and be members in this church community. That's what we want to be a part of. And so we're going to need some inspiration until we get there. And to get it, we're not just going to go to King's dream this morning. We're going to go to our King's dream this morning. You feel me? We're going all the way to the end of the story, like the story, Revelation, where our God, through the Apostle John, is going to give us a future dream of what's to come. And here's what makes this moment unique. What makes this dream different than Dr. King's dream is it's not a dream. It's just facts. It what is coming. He's not showing us what could be. We're about to see what shall be so that we can see what should be. That's what we're about to see in the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there, you can. It's Revelation 5, and uh, I'm actually going to start reading in, in verse 9. We're going to see three things as you turn there, three things to fight for racial reconciliation. And the first is this. Jesus purchased peoples. Jesus purchased peoples. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people, uh, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. So th this is the scene. We're, we're given a sneak peek here in Revelation to, to heaven at the end of all things. And the scene is this. There is a scroll containing all the history and all the judgments that's about to fall on the earth. And it's in the hand of the one who sits on the throne, God himself. And that scroll is bound with a seal. And nobody in heaven or earth can seem to open this thing. Nobody is worthy, the text says, worthy enough to break the seal and to unfold that scroll. And John begins to weep in this vision because no one can do it. And all of a sudden, the text says that somebody steps forward and it's, a, it's someone that says, looks like a lamb that was slain, steps forward. He reaches into the hand of the one on the throne and takes the scroll from him. And when he takes possession of that scroll, the text says, all of heaven breaks into a worship song. And that song, the words they sing, are the undoing of racial prejudice. Listen to what they sing. They sing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Who did Jesus ransom? People from where? Everywhere. 
from everywhere, from every tribe, every tribal group on the face of the planet will have representatives in heaven one day who love and trust the Savior. From every language, every, every tongue that's, that speaks in this whole world, every dialect is going to have representatives in heaven, every people, every nation. That word nation, the, Hebrew, the Greek word is ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity from. Think about it. Ev- representatives from every ethnic group in the entire world for all time will be with you in heaven, trusting and delighting in and boasting in the one who's worthy to take this this scroll. That's what's coming for us. Think about that. And here's what that means. It means this. Jesus didn't just die to purchase people. He purchased peoples. Do you see the difference? Jesus deliberately has purchased peoples. In heaven, your roommates will be Zulu and Jewish and Mexican and African-American and Swahili and Japanese and Turkish and Hani and Aka and Iranian and Brazilian and yes, uh, Californians even, they're going to be there. It's going to be amazing. And, and we're all going to be represented before our God, boasting in the king of kings. The church Jesus died to purchase is incredibly diverse. You hear me? The church Jesus purchased is incredibly diverse, which means we're talking, well, the thing we're talking about today is not a blue or a red issue. Do you hear me? What we're talking about today, this is not a politics sermon. This is a cross of Jesus sermon. You feel that? This is something Jesus purchased. He purchased an incredibly diverse church. We are to care about diversity because Jesus cares about diversity. And we know it because we read it in the end of the story. That's what's coming for us. So, Listen, if you've already written me off today as, as just kind of doing the snowflakey, millennial, social justice, progressivist thing, then I'm just, I'm inviting you to go home today and read Revelation for yourself and see if I've missed it. Because it seems to me the text says Jesus died to purchase peoples for God, which means it should matter to us. It has nothing to do with how you vote. It has everything to do with what the word of God says. Do you see that? Now, how much do we care about this issue, right? We want to care about diversity because Jesus cares about diversity. We want to care about racial reconciliation because Jesus cares about it. We want to care about the flourishing of people of color because Jesus cares about it. My question is, how much, to what degree do we care? And the answer is, to the degree that Jesus cared. That's how much we care. Well, how much did Jesus care? Well, that's our second point. Jesus died to purchase peoples. Jesus died to purchase peoples. Verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God by your blood 
what you spend on something communicates its worth, right? What you're willing to, to spend on something communicates its value to you. Uh, 13 years ago, I spent an embarrassing amount of money on a wonderful guitar. Uh, as a guy who toured for a living, I needed one, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but left-handed guitars are pretty hard to come by. And if you do it for a living, uh, you need one. And when you stumble on one that's actually halfway decent, you do what you got to do to get that thing. And I did what I had to do to get it. And I, I played it almost every day for 13 years, right? And it didn't really matter how much I spent on it. I spent a lot because that's how much it was worth to me. I didn't have a problem with it because it was worth that much. And when the triune God calculates the cost of ransoming people, from every tribe and tongue and nation, the price that he comes up with is the highest price in the universe, the death of God himself. That's the price tag God puts on this precious gift. Or let me say it a different way. Jesus gave his life to buy a diverse church. That's what he did. He gave his life to buy a diverse church church. And if diversity was so valuable to him that he died for it, church, should we expect it to be any less valuable to us? If he died for it, church, we die for it. If he died for it, we come and die for it. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time uh, on this point for most of the rest of the message. And, and here's why. Because I think this is where a lot of well-meaning Christians, like myself, tend to get off track at this moment. I'll, 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 let me just speak for me. From, this, this is just speaking from, from my experience. For pretty much all of my life, I have understood that racism was wrong and bad. I get it. Yes, you shouldn't hate people. The, the, here was the problem, though, with my thinking. The problem was my grid for racism was only hyperboles. That was all that I thought of when I thought about racism. Overt, blatant hatred, slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, KKK. We might say now uh, uh, the alt-right, Nazism. Those were the things that I thought of when I thought of racism. So when I searched my heart to see what was going on there, it was easy for me to feel good. It, it's easy to, to feel like you're in good shape when you're comparing yourself to Hitler, right? Like, man, that guy doing awesome, right? That, that's easy if you only have hyperboles as your category for racism. If all Christ was after is, hey, will you tolerate those who look different than you? Will you tolerate them? Then the truth is, most of this room, we're doing, we're doing great. We're doing pretty good, you know? But what if Christ is calling us to something richer than just passive tolerance? What if he's calling us to active sacrifice? See, now... Now it starts to kick against how we see ourselves a little bit, right? Now, now we can start to feel a little uncomfortable. I, I have a, uh, an acquaintance of mine who's a pastor of a church really similar to ours in DFW, and recently he was preaching a sermon just like this one around a similar theme. And in the middle of his sermon, 
a white gentleman stands up in the middle of the congregation, looks at my friend, points at him and says, I'm not a racist. Which, for the record, didn't really help the guy's case. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, <laughs> bro, you just kind of showed your hand, you know? Uh, but, but, right, I, I think that, that that highlights how this conversation can make some of us feel in the room. I think it highlights that, right? Some of us might be feeling that, that feeling of like, man, what does this have to do with me? Jimmy, are you calling me a racist? I'm not, I'm not a racist, bro. I love, I love black people. I work with black people. I listen to Stevie Wonder. I'm on the team, you know? We should, I get it. Yeah, and by the way, everyone listens to Stevie Wonder. He's amazing. So that's not, no points there, okay? But, but what, what I want, I just want you to hear it. Listen, I'm not, I'm not calling anybody anything this morning. That's not what I'm doing. This is the word of God inviting us to see things differently than we might have before. That's what this is, okay? Christ-like love is not just passive tolerance. It is active sacrifice. I show my wife I love her not just by letting her in my house at night. I show my wife I love her by laying down my life for her. That's how I show her I love her. And the same goes for all of us toward each other. The, the command of God is not passive tolerance. It is active sacrifice. We should be on the lookout for ways to proactively lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Did you know that? Let me just, I, I, I want to give you a few examples of what I mean. We're kind of talking in the clouds right now. Let's put some legs on it. What do I mean? What, what are some ways that we can actively sacrifice as a church for the good of uh, another, especially for those uh, minorities with us? How can we do that? What does that look like? Here, let me give you three, three ways. There's a million. Let me just give you three. Here's, here's one. Praying for change. Praying for change. Are you praying for change? Is this, does this make your prayer list? Does this issue show up when you hit your knees before God the Father? You know, it's, it's remarkable how, how indicative of what our priorities are, um, is what our prayer list looks like shows us what we prioritize. That, that's, it's just what it is. What I care about is what I go to God with. Are you going to God with these issues? Are, are you asking him to change the heart of this nation? Are you asking him to... To, to break bonds of, of racism even in, in the church? Are you asking him to grow diversity among even our own church family? Are those things you're asking? That would be a great place for you to start this morning. Make that part of your prayer list. God, would you, would you change things here? Would you heal the racial divides in our country, in this church? Would you do that? Two, dying to our preferences. Dying to our preferences. This is a, a big one. If, uh, now listen to me. Um, if you're a white uh, person here this morning, it's likely that our worship music on Sundays, for instance, uh, looks and sounds a good bit different than what you've probably been used to in the past. Now, not for everybody, but, but writ large, that's probably the case. It probably doesn't uh, sound or feel like what you grew up with. You're, you're going to see diversity in the leadership on stage, right? Uh, you're going to hear some songs you probably didn't grow up with. Uh, you're you're going to notice some stylistic things that your ear maybe isn't used to. And I just want to let you know that that's intentional. 
We're doing that on purpose here. Years ago, the, the leaders of this church have committed uh, to, to try our best to create an environment that doesn't require our minority brothers and sisters to have to entirely hang their culture up at the door when they come into worship. That was, that was a value that we said we wanted to enact in our church. And look, I just want to own, we're clumsy with it and clunky and we get it wrong. Like I'm not saying we're, we're nailing it, but I'm just saying we're trying to serve more cultures than just white culture here. So that's just one of the things we're trying to do. And what that could mean for you is that instead of being frustrated by that, or like, gosh, I, why won't they just play the hits? You know, like, uh, stuff I know. Um, instead of having that attitude in you, for you to see it as a way that you can lay down your preferences to help serve those from other backgrounds and cultures that aren't yours. That would be such a gift to the minorities in our church for, for you to, to come with that kind of posture. And, and can I just say this? <laughs> I want to promise you something. No matter how many preferences you and I, if you're white here, feel like you're laying down in this church for the sake of this, I just want to be really clear. Our black and brown brothers and sisters in, the church, in this church are laying down hundreds of more preferences to be here than you. And I just got like a, a silent amen from all of them, right? It, it costs something for them to be here. Will you let it cost you something too? Will you let it cost you something too? Lay down your preferences. Die to our preferences. That's a way that we can serve in this way. Here's number three. Bearing each other's burdens. Bearing each other's burdens. I get this from Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're in Christ, do you know you have signed up to carry the burdens of your brother, of your sister? That's, that is one of the things that you have signed up for, to bear some of the pain and difficulty that your brother and sister experiences. That's what it means. I, I will never forget this day. I have an African-American friend uh, who uh, I used to work with who, who pulled me aside one afternoon. Now, this was a number of years ago, and it was at the end of a week that began with a, a police shooting um, involving a black man. And, uh, and I'd heard about it. We'd all, we'd all heard about it. It had been all over the news. And I'll never forget this moment. Uh, he pulled me aside, and we sat down to talk, and he asked me if I'd heard about the shooting. I, sa I said, yes, I had. And then he very kindly just said this, man, it would have meant a lot to get a call from you this week to just check in on me and see how I'm doing. And can I tell you something? I'm just being honest. That never even crossed my mind that he'd be hurting like that this week. I didn't even think about it. It was just a bit of data on my news feed, but not for him. Not for him. And, and listen, in that moment, I didn't need to debate the guy about whether the officer was in the right or in the wrong. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. The, the point was, I didn't have eyes to see that my brother was hurting and he was in pain and, and, and I wasn't willing to get under that yoke with him and carry it with him. That's what I mean when I say this isn't about politics. This is about 
what Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Who is weak, he says, without my being weak. If you're a Christian in here, you are meant to bear the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters, to get under that yoke with them and carry it. That's what we mean when we say this. We need to be willing to enter into each other's pain, bear each other's burdens, and just think about, if you and I did that, if we took the time to be thoughtful in those ways, to enter into their story and see what, the, what hurts on, on their side of the table, Think about how much value and dignity that would communicate to that person. I, can't, I, I started doing it after he called me out. And it was, it was such a wonderful experience to be on the phone with some of my, my, my brothers uh, who are black and uh, during some of these hard moments over our country's uh, you know, past few years. And just to hear them pour their hearts out. And say thank you about how much that meant to them. Think about how much dignity that restores to a person to be able to, to bear another's burden like that. It's, it's amazing what that would do. But you know, as, as I say that, I just have to acknowledge that um, we need something more than just willpower to be able to do this. You know what people need to, to care like this, to be able to be burden bearers? We need, we need empathy. We need empathy. This isn't going to come from white knuckling. We need empathy, don't we? Empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. That's what it is. The ability to understand and to share the feelings of others. And can I just tell you, I just want to, uh, there are a couple things that have been incredibly helpful for me as I've tried to pursue a heart of empathy for my minority brothers and sisters. There's been two things in particular that I want to commend to you as we all try to fight for empathy. Uh, knowing history and having friendships. Knowing history and having friendships have been remarkably helpful for me. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, knowing history. The, the more acquainted that I've gotten with the story of race in our country, the, the more my heart has softened. The more I, I know about where we come from, the more I understand how we are where we are, and the more my heart can break properly for the right things. Uh, I'll just give you an example. Um, learning about things like redlining, right, that happened uh, right here in Dallas and across our nation, uh, redlining that happened against black uh, neighborhoods. So I don't know if you know that term, but so in, in the 1930s, as, as part of the New Deal, uh, our government uh, decided to create these, um, these loan programs to help families get uh, into their first houses. Right? So they created these loan programs, and uh, they created, uh, in order to know who they were going to give loans to and who they weren't, they created these big color maps uh, of who should get loans and, and who shouldn't, what parts of the city should get them and, and what parts shouldn't. Green parts of the map were colored uh, to say this is who we give loans to. Red parts of the map were colored to say this is who we don't give loans to. And wouldn't you know that almost every one of those red zoned areas on the maps were right over black neighborhoods, right on top of them. Now, what does that mean? What are the ramifications of this? Here's what it means. From 1934 until 1962, this is crazy. From 1934 to 62, 98% of all home loans in America went to white families. Just feel that for a moment. That's almost 100%. Think of how that would impact someone's ability to, say, accrue wealth, to not be able to own a home, not be able to have an asset like that, 
uh, to own property. Think about how difficult it would be to, to pass on something like an inheritance to, to future generations. Think of the snowball effect that would happen for your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. And we wonder why places like Oak Cliff, when we drive through it, looks so shady sometimes. Can I tell you, there's reasons for it. There's reasons. It's the brokenness of our history, and it's good for us to be acquainted with it because it helps produce empathy inside of us. Knowing history matters. It matters as a way of tenderizing our hearts toward others. And, and uh, let me just say this. We don't just want to commend this to you. We want to give you some options here. So we, uh, here's one thing that we want to do as a church uh, for you to help grow in you a knowledge of history about these issues. Um, starting today in our uh, bookstore uh, over there in the lobby uh, and, and running through the end of uh, February, which is Black History Month, we're going to be featuring two books that we want every person in our church uh, to read. If you get a chance to head over there and buy uh, copies of these two books, it would be a great plan for, for you and your family to read it. Uh, uh, these books over Black History Month. I've got them right here. Um, the first one is called The Warmth of Other Suns. Uh, it's uh, written by Isabel Wilkerson, and it is a book uh, telling the story of the, um, what uh, sociologists call the, the Great Black Migration that happened from the uh, south of the U.S. to the north uh, over the Jim Crow era. It's a remarkable book. We really commend it to you. Really valuable, eye-opening uh, work. The other one is this. It's called The Narrative of the Life of an American Slave by Frederick Douglass. I read this book over the break, uh, and it's 72 pages. It is a wonderful primer to help you and I get acquainted with American slavery from the, from the vantage point of a slave himself. This was his first biography. Uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, if you don't know, he was a, uh, a, an American slave who um, escaped and went on to become an abolitionist. He's a brilliant, articulate. This is such a helpful book. It was eye-opening, convicting to see um, just some of the broken ways that the church operated even during the, the, the days of slavery. Highly commend this to you. Both of these books are in the bookstore. Um, you can pick it up after service or any time uh, uh, through the month of uh, uh, February. So please be sure uh, to do that. So that's one way we want to help equip you in that. So knowing history matters. That, that's the point. Knowing history matters. But also this, having friendships. Having friendships. In fact, if I had to tell you to pick one, I would say it's this. Having friends, I can't tell you what a mercy and grace it has been to me to over the past 10 years or so just have a growing number of um, minority friendships in my life. African-Americans, Hispanic folks uh, that I can truly call friends. It has been wildly helpful to me. They, they have been conversation partners for me. They, uh, they have given me a fresh perspective on issues I thought I had a handle on. And for all of us in the room, one of the best gifts that you could give yourself are friendships with folks who don't look like you. And uh, this is, uh, listen, I'm, I'm actually asking you to fight for this. This isn't just like to fill a, a sermon space. I'm saying, would you fight for friendships with people who don't look like you this year? It, it will serve you in ways you couldn't have dreamed. It will bless you and grow in you such an empathy. And I, with that, I just want to say this. I want to talk for a moment to, to all our minority uh, members in the church right now. Um, I just want to say this. We're really glad you're here. 
We're, this is your home too. This is your home too. White folks like me need you as our friends. We need you as conversation partners. We need you as intercessors for us. We need you to, to lovingly help us see our blind spots when we can't see them ourselves. We, we need that from you. So, so thank you for being here and know that your presence here doesn't go unnoticed. It matters. You matter. We love having you as part of our church and our church is better for it. So thank you. Thank you. I was, I was gonna um, end differently. In fact, uh, last night, uh, I was working on the sermon and thought I would go to, to a different point here to close, and I t- it didn't feel right. It felt like, uh, it just felt like something was missing in what I said. Um, I think it's this. The, the, the truth is that nothing that I've told you this morning, nothing that I've said, none of the counsel that I've provided actually has the ability to produce lasting empathy in anybody here. I think everything that was said so far has been helpful and inspiring. And I think it will do something for some time. But what I've said so far doesn't actually have the ability to produce permanent empathy, to grow in us a permanent heart for others who aren't like us. It it, it doesn't. And the reality is there's no bit of good advice that can do that. Good advice doesn't work like that. We're fickle people. So, so at the end of the day, you and I, we can read every history book we want to. We can do that, right? We can, uh, we can make sure that all of our friendships, you know, look like a UN convention. We can do that, right? Like that, that would be good. Those would be good things. But if there's anything scripture teaches us, it's that lasting change can never happen simply by heeding good advice. If if there's a message in Scripture, it's that. The only thing powerful enough to inject permanent empathy into a human heart is not good advice. It is good news. That's what we need this morning. And that's what's missing. So here uh, is my new last point. Purchased people love what Jesus purchased. Purchased people love what Jesus purchased. There is only uh, one way that you and I are ever going to truly care for a diverse church that Jesus purchased, and that's if we're purchased. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's if we're purchased. And that's exactly what Revelation 5 is saying Jesus did. Jesus died to purchase a new heart for you and for me. That's what he died to purchase. And if you don't know him as Savior this morning, you should not expect that any of the other stuff that I've said this morning is going to be helpful for you. Because ultimately it won't be. They might do something but it won't do something permanently. Without the gospel, there is no hope for permanent, lasting empathy. That's why he came. That's why he came. In the ultimate act of empathy, Jesus Christ crosses the ultimate cultural barrier. He came from heaven to earth 
to a bunch of rebels like us. And he entered into human flesh to bear the sin for everyone who would trust in him. He did what we can't do. He did what we haven't been able to do for generations. He was permanently empathetic, dying on our behalf, and then giving us his spirit as we trust in him so we could be permanently empathetic. But it's the only way the needle moves forever. It's if this happens. He didn't just come to inspire us with a vision of diversity. He came to change our hearts to love that vision. Do you see that? He came to change our hearts to love the vision. Our only hope is Christ, and he can be yours this morning. He can be yours. So trust him. Trust him to soften you so, so you and I can, can grow in lasting empathy, not just to people, but to peoples for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I meant it when I said that um, we're clumsy in our attempts to do any of this and to care about any of this. And I'm asking for your mercy and your forgiveness for the ways that we've failed, ways we failed you, ways we failed each other. We want to re repent as a church for any and all the areas, God, that we're still blind that our hearts are still hard, that we still have a, a script that is not your script. Jesus, give us the new script. Give us the Revelation 5 script. Just change us, Lord. Every Sunday we're coming saying the same thing. We see what should be and we can't, but we know that you have on our behalf. So change us. Change us so that we can lean into the things we should be doing from a new heart, a heart that beats for you, that beats for, for justice, that beats against prejudice. God, help us. And Lord, I just can't help but, but believe that if you sent your son for us, how will you not also give us this prayer request? So we're believing in faith that it's happening, that you're gonna do it, and that you are doing it. And we thank you for your kindness because Every promise you've given is a yes in Jesus. And we're asking that this would be a yes in Jesus to work in our hearts in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.